Hello and welcome to the Practical Neurology podcast, the essential guide for the everyday life of all neurologists. This is the December 2023 Editor's Choice podcast and today's topic is artificial intelligence, which Professor James Teo of King's College London is going to demystify for us. I'm Amy Ross-Russell, I'm a neurology registrar trainee in Southampton and the podcast editor for Practical Neurology. Professor Teo is a consultant neurologist with clinical interest in stroke and neurorehabilitation. He's also the clinical director of data and artificial intelligence at King's College Hospital and a leading UK figure in clinical informatics. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for giving up your time to talk to us. Thank you. I should mention that James has not only produced a fantastic review available in print and online and freely available to download in the link below the podcast description, but he's also given a sensational lecture to the ABN autumn meeting on this topic, which I really enjoyed watching in the run up to recording this. A reminder that we now produce three podcasts for every edition of Practical Neurology. I record the Editor's Choice podcast with the author of our freely available Editor's Choice article. In addition, the editors of the journal, Professor Phil Smith and Dr. Geraint Fuller, record a wonderful Editor's Highlights podcast discussing the contents of each edition. And Professor Martin Turner also produces a fantastic case-based podcast with current trainees Ruth Wood and Zinu Tai, dissecting some of the fascinating cases that we publish. All of these are available on all podcast platforms and links to those are available on the Practical Neurology X feed or the Practical Neurology website. So we're keeping it short and punchy today, so I'm going to drive straight in to the topic and ask James if you could just give us an overview of what we mean or maybe what we should mean when we say artificial intelligence. What is it and what's it not? Uh, so uh, I think uh, artificial intelligence has become a kind of catch-all buzzword for anything fancy in tech. Uh, I think uh, it is essentially uh, a machine learning method which can be applied to many different uh, types of data, uh, which uh, obviously we're most familiar with in terms of stuff that we see on Twitter and on the internet, but obviously it can also be applied on healthcare data. And so artificial intelligence would be the use of this machine learning algorithms to derive insights or to make uh, models for software. Uh, it is not autonomous. There is uh, often a misunderstanding uh, that artificial intelligence are, is autonomous. It's not necessarily autonomous. And auton- these autonomous things can be built, but uh, it's not ac- uh, actually what AI is being used nowadays in healthcare. The thing I often ask interviewees on here is is where a, a clinical condition or a disease process fits in my sort of neurological filing system. And I guess that's what I want to know about AI as well, but on a system level. Where does AI fit in my practice now? And where do you think it will fit in in my practice, you know, over the next 20 to 30 years, over, over a consultant career? Uh, the best way I think of it is that uh, rather than it, where it fits into your filing system, is to think, what is your filing system? And I think uh, at this stage, our filing systems have been built around kind of what we, we are taught in medical school and around the curriculum. But in the future, how knowledge and information will be stored will be in a very different format and uh, the, the AI systems will be the filing system, so to speak. And so we have to understand a, li- a lot of how these filing systems work. Filing systems are not necess- they're, they're not perfect things. They're not necessarily uh, something that suits every occasion. But the filing system is composed of lots of little modules and tools. So for uh, 
a clinician in the let's say next five years is to understand how the different filing systems work, how different tools and modules work, and which ones are uh, relevant to your your area or your workflow. Uh, what I mean by workflow is what you actually do, as in, are you writing, are you typing, are you calculating, are you uh, evaluating? These are not necessarily disease-specific or specialty-specific. They're about tasks. And so I think uh, in the next five to ten years, we'll be using AI, thinking about AI more in terms of task on how to use the tools. And then over the, the next five, ten years, it will become much more integrated and seamless uh, but in the short term, it's all about using different, you know, using a, a tendon hammer for this occasion, but uh, 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 an ophthalmoscope for another occasion. Yeah, I like that. And I, get, I guess I've sort of separated in my mind the the roles of AI as to sort of time-saving ones. And I've called it advanced computation, sort of being a clever machine that can maybe do more simultaneously. But... In the article, I really like the, well, A, the reassurance that you give us that our jobs are not going to be taken over by machines. But I guess I read it and thought this this sounds to me like what we're gearing up to is a, is a lovely way of saving us a lot of time and potentially a lot of admin. Do you think that we can have that optimism? Uh, we can have the optimism, but uh, we won't have that for the first few years. It will not save us time for the first few years. It will increase the amount of uh, what we have to do in the short term largely because these systems are not going to be, how shall we say, they're, not, they're, they're kind of version one or f- first generation, and so they're not necessarily well integrated or well oiled, but they are necessary evolutionary step. If you Im- imagine the first search engines or the first bits of social media, they weren't the seamless things that we have nowadays. Uh, likewise for social media as well. We, we don't have seamless things for video calls and such. Back, back then, if you recall, we had Skype and all these kind of more complex uh, video calling uh, systems. And all of them required a lot of kind of manual steps, which were qu- was quite laborious. I, I think we're going to encounter that in the short term, and it's going to be extremely frustrating, but uh, it's, an, it's an iterative evolutionary process. So I think it will save us time in the long term, uh, but it, we'd have to get through this kind of um, difficult period of transition. And do you think... <laughs> Do you think clinicians need to get through that period or do you think we can let the tech people do that and uh, and take the finished product? Why do you think we need to be involved? Having uh, worked with a lot of tech people, the tech people are very keen for front-end users to be involved, largely because uh, they don't actually understand what problem we're trying to solve. I think one of the things you may have noticed in a lot of the uh, AI marketing literature is about you know how AI will help you diagnose patients faster, more effectively, more accurately, or even diagnose based on things that the doctor didn't know. But actually, if you actually think about your day-to-day work as a healthcare professional, diagnosis is actually not the biggest part of your job. (laughs) It's actually, you know, uh, only uh, one part of your job, and there's a lot of other parts of your job which involve scheduling, about prioritizing work, you already know what the treatments are, but you need to choose which one to do first and which one to do second. You need to choose, uh, obviously, having the dialogue with the, the individual and patient, the care plans, uh, interacting with multiple professional groups. All these things are beyond just diagnosis. And so I think if you rely on tech people to just do that, they will, they will uh, produce a product which they think is what you want, but it's not actually what you want. And you don't realize that it's not what you want until you actually get it. 
And that, that's been the disappointment of a lot of uh, software products in the past, in which people get products which they think they wanted to buy, usually for quite a lot of money, and then realize it's not all that is cracked up to be. Yeah. And, and how do you think we should, as neurologists, then engage with that process? How should we prepare ourselves and, and how can we best help the development to suit our needs? So I, I think we need digital and data literacy. So we are taught literacy in you know, the English language. We're taught literacy in terms of medical language. We're taught literacy in math. But we're not taught literacy in how pipes of data talk to each other. And these pipes of data, some of it is extremely technical, very, very boring stuff around standards, but some of them are actually very medically relevant in terms of coded data. Health, what are healthcare codes? So, you know, the most familiar people are familiar with is ICD-10, and people, a lot of clinicians say, oh, that's just for coding purposes, that's for billing and all such. That's, that, that's not very interesting. That is very, very important if you want to handle standardized data. And if clinicians, interact with this data and you want to use this vocabulary, they need to standardize the vocabulary. And I think uh, often the uh, clinicians and uh, healthcare professionals complain about the quality of these coding systems and say that it's not you know, detailed enough, it doesn't really capture some aspect of the, the clinical case. Well, it can be made to capture it if you engage, if you engage with the standards bodies, if you understand how these things are constructed and how, what they are meant to do. They're not just dictionaries. Uh, dictionaries are a 19th century concept. We're building machine-readable dictionaries. And these machine-readable dictionaries have to capture meaning in all its entirety, not just in words, but in terms of how to express the meaning in terms of pictures or numbers or make it machine-readable. And so clinicians need to uh, understand these, these standards. These are international standards, which are, I'm not really sure why it's not well taught in the UK. Uh, certainly in other in the, uh, countries, they are much more familiar with a lot of these coding uh, systems. Mm. Thinking about the sort of clinical applications again, I mean, do you think the sky is the limit? Do you think there's a limit as to what AI can do? Um, well, the, the current generation, at least, we're, we're currently in the, I think, third generation of AI uh, technologies. I think that there are fourth and fifth generations are being built. So uh, I, I think there are some things that it's, going to, it's, it's quite good at right now. Uh, some aspects of, uh, of discer discerning patterns and in information. I think there are some bits which is not great at. Uh, what we call agents-like behavior or autonomous behavior is not great at. It's not great at, certainly a lot of the commercial products that there are not great at detailed secondary care healthcare. Uh, it's good at kind of primary care level and simplified healthcare, but not at tertiary level. Obviously, us as neurologists, often many neurologists are interested in secondary and tertiary care, very detailed, uh, highly specialized domains. It's not as good in highly specialized domains at this stage, but it, it's, it's all achievable if, if enough effort is put in. There are some aspects which it is, uh, you require fourth and fifth generation AI. So the way we think, for example, of the brain systems, we have you know, very uh, uh, low level systems, which handle perhaps uh, a lot of the basic re spinal reflexes and brainstem reflexes. But then there are the higher frontal executive components. Uh, those bits have not been built in AI yet, uh, or have not been uh, the, what we call symbolic logic. Uh, AI systems are not yet uh, cutting edge. They're not really primary school level math yet. And those, so those things uh, 
I think requires some technological breakthrough yet still. Then the last thing is that um, they're not very energy efficient right now. They can be made much more so. Uh, and uh, there are alternative ways of, of building AI systems which may become much more energy efficient. Uh, and so that's going to be another limiting factor in the longer term. Yeah. Do you think um, you mentioned there's been this sort of exponential growth of technologies and increasing competition in the field? Do you think that level of growth and development will be a challenge in the f- in the future? Do you think there'll be just too many products that we'll have to choose between, and we'll become sort of constantly, you know, trying to select between different things and then discordant systems? Um, I, I think that's a possibility, but I I don't think that that's actually what happened in uh, other tech revolutions in our industries, what actually happened is that many of these products all died after about four or five years and they merged into each other. So you, you obviously, uh, kind of the simplest analogy is the, all the apps that you have on your phone. You, you, you started off with downloading hundreds and hundreds of different apps. And after a while, lots of people just consolidated to a few apps that they use all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's going to end up happening, I suspect. The issue is how much consolidation and whether there's a right balance between consolidation and diversity. The other factor, I think, which uh, could be even more problematic, rather, uh, is that people just don't interact across apps. So you use one AI system and one data digital infrastructure, and you never see some other company's version of it. And so then you get locked into kind of this little walled garden and not experiencing something else. So it's like using only one kind of uh, uh, app or social media and never using any other kind and not being able to interact with another tribe of people who use another sort. And so you could create kind of specialties which don't talk to each other, which you know amplifies the situation. Yes, which is, of course, we already see in, in medicine already, don't we? I was thinking about the sort of ethical and safety implications, and and there's a few things, aren't there? So two interesting aspects, both relating to sort of safety and accountability. Thinking about what happens if the system goes wrong, if you put it into practice in a role. So firstly, how transparent are the systems once they're sort of packaged up? Let's say something goes wrong and you try and unpick the decision making of a system. Is that possible to do? And who then takes responsibility? Sure, sure. So some of the early criticisms about uh, AI systems to complain about them being black boxes, I think some AI systems built wrongly can be black boxy, whereas actually a lot of the CE mark devices which use AI systems, most of them radiology-based, are actually quite transparent. They highlight areas and they log. Uh, they, they, ha- they highlight their, uh, the, co- the way that they handle the code the flows of data, everything is logged uh, for, for reverse engineering. Uh, obviously, you know, if, if the analogy is if you use an MRI scan machine and you see and you do the scan and there's a distortion on the scan, who's at fault? Mm. Well, I mean, it's clearly that there's a problem with the use of the machine and that is logged and that is reported as an error log. That, that's no different for many of these AI systems. Uh, who's liable? Uh, I think a lot of it depends on how the information is used to make the, any de- clinical decision. Currently, most of these AI systems don't make any decisions. They only present information, what we call clinical decision support. Uh, I, I think uh, and the liability continues to remain with the, the human clinician as long as they know how to use it and the device is used within its uh, regulated intended purpose, which is a specific legal term. So the, these, the regulation exists 
for health healthcare AI products is just uh, what is it uh, evenly enforced, and whether or not the, our regulators are able to enforce it, or our individual organizations have the ability to to do the auditing of it. I think uh, not all our organizations are. Uh, I think it requires a degree of nimbleness, uh, which currently most of our uh, NHS organizations just aren't resourced to handle. What about equality? You mentioned sort of certain tech giants sort of dominate the field and as a consequence it becomes geographically, I think, a bit unequal. Do you think that's a risk for the development over time? Uh, I I would say that uh, rather than unequal in that context, I mean, I would say that it, it produces distortions of how the, of the kinds of technologies and its priorities. For most of the tech giants are North American, and obviously they train on data that's available in North America. And so these models are designed around the, the health economics and, uh, uh, and the diversity and representation within those health economies. Many of them don't translate very well to other systems. They're imperfect, not because they're, they're, they're poor by design. It's just that they don't capture the different demographic aspects. So, for example, uh, some of the socio-ethnic issues in North America are much bigger than in the, in the UK. So uh, the, the, the racial divide uh, in some aspects of North America is much starker than in, in parts of Europe. Uh, not that, that it doesn't exist in Europe, it's just that it's different. And it, it splits along different uh, racial, religious, and ethnic ground. And so all, all those aspects create AI systems which are not finely tuned to, to the what we call localized to their, their, their geographic regions. Uh, then that, that's also the, the whole fairness element that obviously you want to produce fairness in, in AI. I would say that uh, you can only produce fairness in AI if you capture as much of the population that you are using the AI in as possible. If you, act, if you kind of skip out bits of the population because of, uh, of his, the historic data not capturing enough of them, or if they decide all to opt out because of privacy concerns, then the, the AI is just going to perform badly on it. And uh, so what, what you're actually experiencing is that uh, you are actually, uh, the missingness of these populations are actually what drives inequality and that these AI systems could actually embed it if you don't uh, build them in a way or monitor them in a way that they can continue to, to grow and adapt to their local populations. What about cost? Are they, uh, I mean, A, are they vastly expensive to develop? You would imagine that there's a significant outlay cost, but also will, will they be affordable? So uh, certainly you can make very cheap ones very quickly. They're small and they, the best way to think about it, I suppose, is like a pen knife with lots of different kind of uh, instruments that stick out. You can easily make one perfectly designed for disease X in scenario B. Uh, and it's very, very cheap to make. You can make it in a day or two if you have the data. The, the issue is that it's not, may, it may not be very generalizable and it, the cost builds up if you want to, to you know, bring it through the whole development pipeline. I think the tech giants and the big software vendors are keen to uh, push people towards more expensive models which they can charge for. There are advantages to the, the big expensive models, but they come at the, obviously the cost of the price. Uh, you can make much cheaper, smaller models 
which can run on much smaller computers. You can run many of these AI systems on your own laptop, not connected to the internet at all. That, that's cheap. Is it uh, medical grade quality? No, because most of the, the cost in it is not the computational infrastructure. It is getting it through the regulators. And so that's the expense. And it's actually the cost is regulation, not the making of the software. Right, okay. And and I think I'm right in saying that they are licensed or regulated as software as medical devices. Is that correct? Uh, depending on the how you're using them. So if you're using an AI to uh, do a voice dictation, that's not a med- software as a medical device. If you're using it to spell check your Word document, that's not a medical device. But if you use it for counting lung nodules or for uh, uh, demarking strokes, and yes, they would be software as a medical device. Okay, perfect. Just taking the example of stroke, which you use in your paper, it's clear to see that that radiology is one of the the leading areas of AI and that you can use that really effectively to to pull out contrast. And we see it using stroke a lot. And and you've demonstrated sort of time saving in that context in, in the examples in your article. Do you think that that stroke, which is quite a good model, isn't it, for for scores and for good data and very evolving data, and 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 you say that AI feeds off data? Do you think this is an ideal scenario for sort of bringing in AI for decision making? That you could have a a decision making tool that is a bit more autonomous, that can take the radiology and can take the NIHSS score and the frailty score and feed that into the algorithms of of the new data that's coming out to to make decisions. Um, yeah, but I'm not sure that the decision is actually what you necessarily need most solved now because the, the, you, you still need the neurologist to do a lot of the other bits of the patient, the stroke pathway. And so just saving on the neurologist to say yes or no uh, is actually it's not really solving a problem that you need. It could help with, let's say, allocating a flow of patients from one hospital to another. Uh, it could help that at that stage, but it wouldn't help it with the kind of, oh, should we need the patient to do a, a thrombectomy now? Well, you still need the neuroradiologist to do a thrombectomy, so what, why, what are you actually saving? Well, you might, you might not need a straight consultant on call overnight. Uh, well, uh, you certainly, uh, many of these hospitals which are doing it don't, already don't use a neuroradiologist to look at the scan. So you're not, you're not using a neuroradiologist, you're, you're already automated that bit, but these hospitals never had a neuroradiologist. So uh, I guess in that sense, it's, it's, is it a decision that you made or is that something, a decision that was never made? Because you know many of the district hospitals, for example, never had a neuroradiologist, never had a stroke service, but because you installed the software there, your patients can then be uh, allocated along stroke pathways up to tertiary hospitals far away. Yes, and that's a nice example, isn't it, of, of increasing <laughs> accessibility. Yeah, precisely. James, very final question. If there's one uh, good AI intervention that I should know about that's going to dramatically improve my quality of life over the next five years, what would it be? The simplest one, I think, right now, uh, the next low-hanging fruit is counting T2 lesions in MS <laughs> of repeated interval scans because that's, that's a laborious process which is extremely time-consuming. And I think that uh, is uh, right for... AI use, but will that help? How much decision making will that help? I think we, we sh- that's to be determined. Thank you. That's brilliant. Our uh, inflammatory colleagues will be absolutely delighted. 
Thank you so much. I think we've got three minutes to go. Is there anything that you wanted to add? I would say for, uh, obviously this uh, is a practical neurology. So it's about learning uh, a practice. So my recommendation to, for practice is that you, to understand many of these things, you need to kind of practice. And you kind of have to practice by working with data and with courses and things like that. And there are lots of free courses on the internet. Uh, YouTube videos, Coursera, online courses, which you have projects that you can do by yourself on free data sets on the internet. You can only really learn this by practice. It's just like any clinical skill. You learn by doing rather than by rote learning or from books. Yeah, thank you. And I think you've outlined some of those resources in the paper as well. So just uh, another reason for people to go and have a look. James, thank you so much for that wonderful discussion of a really cutting edge field that I only just understand, but which you're clearly a master of. Reminder to listeners, we've only scraped the surface of James's recent paper, which you can access and download for free by clicking on the link in the podcast description. This goes into the topic in much more depth and fills in some of the background to AI development that we didn't have time to cover today, along with really great examples of where AI can help in a variety of areas of neurology. Another brief reminder to have a listen to the other PM podcasts available on all podcast platforms. And a plea if you have time to please leave us a review on our iTunes page or get in touch to give us any feedback on this or any of our podcasts. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. And another final thank you to Professor James Teo for a great discussion. Thank you, James. <laughs>